Our confessional reading uh, today uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, comes to us uh, from Lord's Day 9, Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26, and I'll read that with you now. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? And this is the answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ, His Son, my God and my Father. In Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father." We'll not only hear from this confession of the Christian faith, but we will hear from the living and abiding in the eternal Word of God, and we'll turn for that reading to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is perhaps the first of the four Gospels that was written. It is a very passionate and an urgent Gospel in which Mark is very keen to share with us the truth of who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah, and we'll read from the end of chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. This is the word of the living and the Almighty God. A man with leprosy came to him, that is Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning, See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm and sure forevermore. Friends, here in Lord's Day 9 of the Catechism, we make a good confession. A good confession about the way that God treats believers as a father. And in this confession, we confess two very important things. First of all, we confess that God is able to help us. Now, why is God able to help us? Well, He is able to help us because of who He is, and He is the Almighty God of heaven and earth, and there is no power in all of existence that is greater than His, and so He is able to help His people. But we also confess here in this Lord's Day that that God is not just able to help, but that He is also willing to help us, and that He is willing to help us as a faithful Father. Now, why is that? Because as a Father, He has a compassionate heart, and He looks with love, and He looks with mercy, and He looks with, with pity upon His children, and He desires to help them. He desires to strengthen them, and to sustain them, and to cleanse them, and to be in fellowship with them. 
And so here in Lord's Day 9, we say two very important things about God the Father. He is able as the Almighty God to help us, and He is willing to help us as a loving Father. But here's the thing. I'm willing to bet that of those two things, you have found it easier to believe the first than perhaps you have found it to believe the second. Which is to say that I suspect that for many Christians... It has been easier to believe that God is able to help, and it's perhaps been more challenging, more difficult to believe that He is willing to help. Do not think that it is a terribly difficult confession to, to confess that, that the Lord is the living God, and that there is no power, no power that is greater than His. That's a fairly straightforward thing for a Christian to confess. But to imagine that God is indeed willing to use that power to help us can be a more difficult struggle. Now, why might that be the case? Why might it be that it is easier to believe that He's able to help than perhaps to believe that He's willing? Well, I have three thoughts that I'd like to share with you this evening. First of all, I think one of the reasons we might find it difficult is because we've had experience with fathers. Now, I want to use the word fathers here a little bit broadly tonight, not just your, your biological father, but father in the sense of an authority figure. We have different fathers in our lives who, who rule over us and who govern us in different ways. And we've had experiences of fathers that, that haven't always been positive. The reality is that the fathers in this fallen and broken world, sometimes they don't use their power and sometimes they don't use their authority in good ways. Well, the sad reality is that sometimes they abuse their authority. Sometimes they abuse their authority by hurting us, but sometimes they abuse their authority by not caring for us. And so the reality is we have had experiences in this life where, where fathers have proven that they have power, that they are able, but we've had experiences where they've proved that they aren't always willing. And we can transfer some of those feelings those negative feelings about fathers to God. And we can wonder, well, is he just like every other father, able to help me, but not necessarily always willing? The second reason that we might find it difficult to believe that God is indeed willing to help us is because in this life we sometimes experience suffering. We endure hardship. We endure trial. Things happen to us that, that leave us in distress and in our distress, we might think to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I know that God is the almighty God of heaven and earth, and I know that He has all power in His hands, and yet I'm over here suffering. And why doesn't God use some of His almighty power to alleviate my distress or to take away those difficulties? And the third thing that I would point out is this, the reality is that we know ultimately, don't we, down deep, if we're honest with ourselves, that we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve His mercy or His kindness or His compassion. The reality is we know, even as, as, child, as a child of God, you know that over the course of just this past week, there have been times when you've acted in ways that have brought shame to the Son. You know that there have been times that you've acted in ways that have aroused the Father's indignation because you know as a sinner that you've rebelled against Him. And so fundamentally, we know if we're, if we're honest with ourselves that we're not really worthy of God's compassion and goodness. And so those things, they can cause us to wonder, I know God is able, but is He really willing? Is He willing to use His almighty power 
for my good, for my benefit, and for my blessing. Well, tonight I'd like to suggest that this passage that we've read from the Gospel of Mark, that it it can help to strengthen our faith in this regard. It can help to build our confidence to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only is God the Father able, but He is indeed willing. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because of the leper whom we read about in this passage. He is so very much like us. Now, how is that? Well, if you look at that passage, what you'll see is this. When the leper comes to Jesus, he has absolutely no doubts at all about Jesus' ability to heal him. He's absolutely confident, 100% in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's decidedly less certain about the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I know you can make me better. I know you have the power, but are you willing? I know you're able, but are you willing? That's the question that he asks. Now, here's the thing about this leper. The reality is he had reason to wonder if indeed Jesus would be willing to save him. The reality is that this man was a leper. He suffered from the disease of leprosy, and that is something that that means a lot less today here in Canada than it used to mean in Old Testament times. The reality is, living here in Canada, you might go your entire life and never once meet someone with leprosy. And the reality is, if you ever did get leprosy, well, in today's world, uh, some antibiotics will treat that. You can get a course of antibiotic treatment, and it will deal with leprosy, and you can go on about your way. But that was not the case in Old Testament times. No, in Old Testament times, there was absolutely no cure for leprosy. Indeed, at that time, it was widely believed amongst the Jews that the only person who was capable of of healing a leper was God Himself. Now, here is the thing. This disease of leprosy, it had some brutal physical effects. It had an effect of, of... wrecking the body of the person who was afflicted with that disease. But that wasn't actually the worst part of what it meant to suffer leprosy in the Old Testament. No, the worst part about being a leper were all of the social consequences that came with it. You see, lepers, they weren't just sick people. They were people who were declared to be unclean. And they were declared to be religiously, ritually unclean. And because they were declared to be unclean, there were some dire consequences for the way that they lived their lives. Lepers, in the first place, were not allowed to live as part of the community. They had to live in separate communities that were outside the towns and villages. And so there were little leper communes in which all the people with leprosy gathered together and lived together, but they had to be completely separate from the rest of the community. They lived in total isolation. And I think we've learned something over the last few years, haven't we? about the profoundly damaging impact of isolation. We had to live with a certain amount of isolation for two years. These lepers had to live in permanent isolation as long as they remained sick. But it wasn't just the isolation. The reality is they had to do things that marked them out. Lepers were required to let their hair grow long. And they were required to wear torn and ripped clothing. They were required to wear a face covering over the bottom half of their face. And on top of it all, whenever a leper found themselves in the presence of someone who didn't have leprosy, they had to warn them by calling out, unclean, unclean. And that's the thing about this man. 
He suffered a terrible disease for which there was no cure. But that wasn't the worst part of his life. The worst part of his life was being cut off, cast out from society. But what does this man do when he sees Jesus? Jesus is surrounded by great crowds. And this man sees Jesus and he knows that Jesus has the power to heal him. And so instead of standing at a distance, this man comes running towards Jesus. He cuts through the crowd. He breaks every single rule. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus and he says to him, If you are willing, then I know that you can make me clean. Now here is the thing about these circumstances. The reality is that what this man had done by the standards of the time was absolutely horrifying. He had broken every single social restriction that there could possibly be. And in effect, what he had done was actually really to, to almost assault Jesus. Because here was the thing about a leper. Their uncleanness could be passed from them to the people that they came into contact with. And so as this man comes through the crowd, he's imperiling the cleanliness of everyone around him. As he comes before Jesus and throws himself on the ground, he's threatening Jesus' purity. And by the standards of the time, any respectable Jew would have reacted by recoiling. They would have pulled back in horror. They would have pulled back in disgust. They would have tried to get as far away from this leper as was possible, as quickly as possible, to try to protect their own ritual and religious purity. But here in this passage, the remarkable thing about our Savior, the truly shocking thing about this passage, isn't the the thing that the leper has done in breaking all these social rules. No, the truly remarkable thing in this passage is how Jesus responds to this man. Because Jesus doesn't respond by pulling away in horror. He doesn't look on this man with disgust. He doesn't recoil from him and say, get away from me. No, Jesus does exactly the opposite. Instead of recoiling, he actually moves towards the man. And not only does he move towards the man, but he reaches out and he He lays his hands on him. And Mark's language here is very specific. It's not just a passing touch. Jesus grabs him. He holds him. He lays hold of him. And that is extraordinary. And Mark, he doesn't just tell us. He doesn't just tell us what Jesus did. He also tells us why Jesus did it. In the NIV, it says a rather strange phrase. It says that Jesus was indignant. Other translations render that slightly differently. They say Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with pity. He saw this man's suffering. He saw his grief. And rather than withdrawing from it, Jesus moves towards him in his grief. He moves towards him in his shame. He moves towards him in his lostness. And he lays hold of him. And having taken hold of him, what does Jesus do? He says two things. I am willing He says, I will. I see you're lost and broken and fallen and lost condition. And my heart is moved with pity and compassion. I will, says Jesus. And then he says, be cleansed. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, if you read through the gospel of Mark, it's Mark's absolutely favorite word to describe the biggest events in the gospel. Immediately, Mark says, the man was made clean. His leprosy was gone. His body was restored. 
It was an incredible thing for Jesus to give this man because he not only gave him his health back, Jesus gave this man his life back. You see, this man, he could go home now. He could go home to his family. He could go home to his community. He could go back and worship in the temple. He got his identity back. He got his life back. He got his health back. Jesus gives him all of this when he says, I will be clean. Jesus says, I am able and I am willing. You might think to yourself for a minute, this is lovely and this is a wonderful story, but didn't that confessional reading from the catechism, didn't that talk about God the Father? And didn't that talk about how God the Father is the one who is willing and able? But Jesus, He is God, but He's God the Son. So why are we talking about Him? Why aren't we talking about the Father and His willingness and His ability? Well, here I want to encourage you, perhaps tonight should you have an opportunity, to go and read John chapter 14. Because in that beautiful chapter, Jesus tells us something so profound and so wonderful about His ministry. It's on the eve of his crucifixion. He's about to be parted from his disciples, and his disciples are terrified. They're worried. They know Jesus is going to go away from them, but they don't know where he's going to go. And they know that, that Judas has gone off into the darkness to betray Jesus. And Jesus has just said that Peter is going to betray him. And the disciples have been shaken to their core. And in that evening hour, Jesus wants to calm them. He wants to build up their hope. And so what does he do? He secures them in the love of the Father. He says to them, yes, I'm going away from you, but never doubt for a moment the Father's love for you. And then he says something remarkable. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And one of his apostles, Philip, Philip who is crying out to Jesus for comfort, he says, Lord, look, I can see that you're trying to help us here, but but if you say that you and the Father are one, please show us the Father. And if we see the Father, then we'll, we'll believe. We'll trust. We'll be confident. We won't panic if you show us the Father. And Jesus responds to Philip in such a loving way. He says to him, he says, Philip, you've already seen the Father because you've seen the Father in me. And he says to Philip, you've seen the Father in all the works that I've done. And he says to Philip, you've heard the Father in all the words that I've spoken. If you have seen me, says Jesus, you have seen the Father. Now let's take that, that wonderfully comforting message from John 14 and let's apply it to what we've read here. Jesus does not recoil from this leper in his misery and suffering. He draws near to him. And he takes hold of him and he says, I am willing and I am able. And what we need to realize is that when he speaks those words and when he does that mighty act of cleansing, Jesus is speaking the will of the Father and he is doing the work of the Father. And he does this because Jesus Christ is the fullest manifestation of the heart of the Father. He is evidence of the compassionate heart of God who does not draw away from us in our sinfulness, who doesn't draw away from us in our brokenness, who doesn't turn away from us in all our shame, but who draws near to us in love and who seeks to cleanse us, not from leprosy, but from the source of leprosy, from sin. Jesus is the fullest manifestation of the fullest revelation of the loving 
and the compassionate heart of God. And so if you are here tonight and you are struggling with the circumstances of your life, perhaps you are suffering various difficulties. There might be hardship in your home. There might be hardship at your work. There might be struggles in your health. If you are here tonight and you are wondering, I know that God is able to help me. But is He really willing? Is He really willing to work in my life to my good, to my blessing and my benefit? Then all you need to do to be 100% sure that that is the case is to look to Jesus. Because He is not just the fullest manifestation of the Father's desire to save. He is the fullest manifestation of the Father's power to save. Jesus is the living evidence that the Father is both willing and able. Amen. Let us draw near to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you in this evening hour. We come to you as those who may be burdened by various difficulties or troubles. Those whose hearts may be afflicted by various fears and doubts. Lord, in this broken world, so many things can assail us. So many things, Father, can chip away at our confidence. So many things can seek to strip us of hope. And yet, Father, you have reminded us this evening in the living power of your word that you are a good and a gracious Father. And you have reminded us that you are able, for you have all of the power. There is no problem that you cannot solve. No foe that you cannot defeat. No victory that you cannot win. You are the almighty God of heaven and earth. And the power and the glory are yours alone. And yet you have also reminded us that you have a loving and a compassionate and a gracious and a fatherly heart. And that you are not just able, but that you are also willing. And that you have shown us these things in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I would ask that for all those who are here this evening that already know you, that you would focus their eyes more firmly on you. And Father, if there are those here this evening who have yet to come into fellowship, I would ask that you would open their hearts, open their hearts so that they would receive the truth of the gospel message that you desire to be reconciled with sinners. And that you do not despise us on account of our sin and shame, but you draw near to us and you have drawn near to us in your Son who is himself the way of salvation. Father, may that truth resonate in the hearts of all who are here tonight. And Father, would you bless that truth through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll sing as a responsive psalm, Psalm 103, the alternate melody, I believe, Psalm 103.
Okay, so many questions. Pastor Ian's not even here, and there are many questions. Last time I was here, I accidentally outed Pastor Ian. He asked me a question, and I saw his name, and I said, oh, Pastor Ian's asking this, and then I realized I wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, but at any rate, explain the hypostatic union. Okay, well, we're going to leave that for another day. Um, we'll start here. Um, oh, hold on. Okay, we'll start here. Why do you think the NIV text is trying, or what do you think the NIV text is trying to convey with the word indignant? Indignant at the man's suggestion that Jesus wouldn't be willing. Indignant at the man's condition. Um, I think what we have to recognize is this. In the Old Testament, it was God who had set all those prescriptions about the way that lepers were to live. You can go back and read about that in Leviticus 13 and 14. It's God who says to His people, if someone is afflicted with leprosy, this is how they have to live, and this is how they have to dress, and this is how they have to behave. It was God who said that. Now, why does God do that? Because lepers were in their condition a kind of living parable, and as a living parable, what they proclaimed is that their outward condition was reflective of an inner condition. What is the source of all illness? The source of all illness is sin. Whatever illness exists in the world, its ultimate consequence is sin. And here's the thing about the lepers. Um, there was a, uh, a Jewish historian named Josephus who said of these lepers that they were essentially living corpses. He says effectively they were the walking dead. And the point was to say that they represented in their physical condition and in the, in, in the lives that God called them to live sort of the impact of sin, that sin brings death. Now, you have to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of life who has called all things into existence. And He created this world at His Father's will. He created this world through His own Word, and He created it good. And in that world, there wasn't death. Death wasn't supposed to ever be part of this world. And so, what you have is Jesus as the Lord of life coming into direct conflict or contact with the impact and the consequences of sin, which are death. And so, you have this individual who represents a living death, the walking dead in front of the Lord of life. And this is not how things are supposed to be. Death should not exist. Sickness should not exist. 
Jesus didn't make things to be this way. And he is, in a sense, indignant at sin. He is indignant at death. He, is, he, is, he hates sin and death. And it bothers him to the very core of his being. The language that Mark uses in this text is, is visceral language. Now, your viscera are your guts. They're your intestines. And what Mark is saying is that this reaction from Jesus, it comes from the deepest part of him, right from inside of him. It bursts forth out of him from the core of his being as the Lord and giver and creator of life faced with the ugliness of sin and death. And Jesus just says, this should not be. But it's also compassion. Right? It's not just anger at death. It's compassion. He wants to restore us to life. And if you think about the whole point of Jesus' ministry, what is the entire point of Jesus' ministry? It's putting things back to the way that they ought to have been. Jesus restores the ought to have been. So what Jesus does is he goes around. He sees someone who's blind. He says, now you can see. He sees someone who can't walk. He says, now you can walk. He sees someone who's sick. He says, now you're healthy. He sees someone who's dead. He says, come back to life. He sees people who have hearts of stone and rebellion. He reaches in. He rips out those hearts and he puts in a heart of flesh. Jesus is in the business of putting things back to the way that they ought to have been. And when he confronts this man, Jesus is indignant at sin, death, brokenness. And he says, it's not going to be this way. I'm putting it back to the way it was going to be. I'm putting it back to the way I always intended it to be. I'm the Lord, a giver of life. I'm healing this man. And that's it. And, and so that's the indignation. It's not indignation at the man's request. It's indignation at the source of the man's illness, which is sin and death itself. And Jesus says, I'm done with that putting it back. Okay. I think that's the best answer I can give to that. Uh, what does it mean to look to Jesus? Easy to say, but what does it look like when you are suffering? Sometimes you cannot even pray or read the Bible. Um, that is very true. There can be times in our life when our grief is so great, when our grief is so deep, that we don't see much in the way of light. Uh, we were just reminded of the passing of Tim Keller. I think one of the things that I have gained the most from, from Pastor Keller from, he does a beautiful sermon on Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a fascinating psalm in the Bible because there's just misery. It's the only psalm in the Bible where there's no hope, no light, no expression of confidence. The psalmist just says, hello darkness, my old friend. That's all he says. There's just darkness, suffering, misery. And Keller opens up that psalm. And one of the beautiful things that he says in his sermon is that Psalm 88 is in the Bible as that expression of misery and suffering because it's okay to tell God that things suck. It's okay to tell God that you just had enough and that you don't think you can go on any further. It's okay to tell Him that you're grieving and that you're, you're borne down by these things. It's okay to pour out your heart to Him. And there are times when it's hard to find hope. There's times when it's hard to see hope. But I think one of the things I would encourage you in this is, I think sometimes we think our prayers need to be complicated, that we're in the midst of suffering, we're in the midst of trial, we're feeling overwhelmed and battered down, and we think that we have to somehow have a complicated prayer, but we don't. And what I want to encourage you with tonight is that when times are hard, there's a beautiful prayer by Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, when he was in the depths of his spiritual anguish, this was the prayer he prayed. Lord, I am yours. 
save me. That's it. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. It's a very powerful prayer. It's a very beautiful prayer. It is a prayer that confesses that you are depending on the promises of the Lord, that you need His help, that you need His rescue, that you need Him to be faithful to the things that He said. Lord, I am yours. Save me. So yeah, there are times when it is very difficult. Um, and it, it's okay to pour out your heart to God and tell Him that you don't see any obvious light. But then pray that prayer of Luther. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. Very powerful prayer. Um, okay. Oh, there's a multiple parts here. When we receive an answer to a prayer, is it natural to respond with praise and thankfulness? However, should a Christian respond to how should a Christian respond to unanswered prayer? I feel that we hold ourselves back from doing so many things in God's name because we doubt our own strength or worthiness. If we're truly willing, will God always make us able? Hey, <laughs> where's Pastor Bill? Um, we are frail, and we are weak, but God saves us and makes use of us in spite of ourselves. It's rare that you see something intelligent on social media, but I did see this thing on Facebook the other day, and it, it, it was... I don't know if it's called a meme, I'm not that technical, but it was one of these things. And it said, it said, God has already factored your stupidity into His plans. And then below it, it said the most comforting thing I've read today. And oh, that is true, right? God has already factored your stupidity into His plans. Now, we could take out stupidity and put in weakness. God has factored your weakness. He's factored your frailty. He's factored your limitations. He's not unaware of these things. He's factored all of those things into his plan. And knowing that, he still has work for you to do. And when God decides to bring a work about, even through us, with all our weakness and our frailty, he will do it, often in spite of us. Now, should we rejoice when prayers are answered? Absolutely. When we receive an answer to prayer, we should rejoice, we should praise God, we should sing songs, we should, we should extol His goodness. What do you do when there's unanswered prayer? Well, I guess the question to ask is, um, A, has it really been unanswered? Is that really true? It can be tough sometimes to tell, but is it really an unanswered prayer? If you really think it is an unanswered prayer, then maybe it's worth thinking about why it might be unanswered. Have I asked for the right things? Have I asked in the right way? Am I asking to the right ends? It's probably worth going back and kind of working your way through those prayers. But if you have determined that the prayer is unanswered, and if you have determined that you're asking for the right things in the right way, and you're still not getting an answer, then it may be that God is simply prevailing upon your heart to learn patience and that He wants you to keep asking and to be persistent in prayer. Um, I do think that God calls upon us sometimes to ask many times. I think you can read the Puritans talking about assailing the heavens with prayer, not praying once or five or ten or twenty times, but, but day in and day out and fervently. Right? I think of parents who pray for their children 
perhaps to return to the faith? How often don't you hear of a mother who prayed for a son or a daughter for 30 years? And, you know, at, at the 20-year mark, they might have thought this prayer is unanswered. But God was just waiting for another 10 years of prayer. And there you go. Uh, in what case, if any, is God able but unwilling? Well, I think the only things that God is ever unwilling to do are things that are counter to His own nature or plans. So, if something is counter to God's nature, or if it is counter to His plans, then God may be, well, God will be unwilling to do that. And then you, I guess you could raise the philosophical question, is God able to do something that He doesn't want to? Uh, I don't think so. I guess it's a little like asking, could God make a rock so big He can't lift it? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, without going down some philosophical rabbit holes, how to answer that one. Um, God will never do anything that is out of touch with His character or out of line with His character or out of line with His sovereign plans. He will always work consistently with Himself and the goal of bringing glory to His own name. Anything that achieves those goals, He will do. Anything that doesn't achieve those goals, He will not do. don't know if that helps. Um, last one. We just sang that all our sicknesses He heals, but He doesn't. Why do we sing that? It feels wrong. Yeah, that is true. Sometimes God doesn't bring physical healing, does He? Sometimes we beg Him for physical healing. We ask for physical healing. And that physical healing never comes. I guess one thing I would say is this. The physical healing will come. Right? I mean, the wonderful thing is that Christ is building a kingdom in which there's... N and that's the thing, right? What is Jesus in the business of doing? Putting things back to the way they ought to have been. Now, He's doing that bits and pieces at a time, but it's going to be completed in an instant when He returns and when everything is set back the way that it needs to be. And in that kingdom, your illnesses will be healed forever and ever, amen, never to be again. Now, that is a hope for the future. And it's sometimes a hope we need to rest in in the present when we don't get that physical healing. But what God promises is that He will always give you victory, right? And maybe we need to just take a broader definition of healing. Your disease might not go away, but God will never leave you to face that illness or trial alone, and He will most certainly give you victory over it. Now, victory might not come in the form of physical healing. But He will certainly not let you be gripped by it or overwhelmed by it or dragged away by it. He will indeed grant you victory over that. The victory may be a limited victory here, but it will be an ultimate victory in heaven.